0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Where are we?
2: We're in Girona, in the Plaza de la Independencia, which is very appropriate at the moment, and about to head off on, uh, up towards El's Angels, which is a bit of a classic loop in Girona. And who are you? My name's David Miller. I'm an ex-professional racer.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash/host.
2: Girona's, I mean, there's a reason that so many professionals now live here, is because there's a multitude of terrain I and mean, good quality roads, not very busy. And you can go, I mean, we're riding straight out of here, straight out of Drona. And within, you'll see, five minutes, we're on a beautiful empty road that just climbs up for 15 k's. But not very hard, just steady state. But then you can go, because Drona is, it's not like living on the coast or an island. So you can choose if you're going east, west, north, south, northeast, northwest. There's always options. And each one of those options gives you a different terrain, different kind of... Flat roads, hilly, windy, mountainous, and uh, and kind of almost like microclimates as well. So it really is a a cycling haven in that respect.
1: Um, And it's got big in Girona now. But we were the sort of vanguard of pros moving here to train and to live and to base themselves.
2: It all began with Johnny Welts, the Danish rider, back in the 90s. Uh, He'd come here. He raced Spanish teams. Raced for onset at the time. And uh, when Lance Armstrong, George Hincapie. When they were leaving France in the late 90s, Johnny Walsh was a a direct sportif for U.S. Postal, and he recommended they come to Drona. So that was the late 90s, when you had the first sort of little group, and it was Americans. A bit later, then you had Fred Rodriguez, Levi Leipheimer, Daisy Grisky, Floyd Landis. So it became really an American, kind of European base. And I came in just at the end of that, so I came, I came here 2006 because you were in Biarritz before, right? I was in Biarritz, and then been I had a change. Oh, I was in Manchester in between, so in the Peak District. <laughs> so that's a real change. Yeah. And I had the option; I could have gone. No, I could have live anywhere in Europe. I tried Tuscany. I'd done South of France, so fancy doing something different. And Christian Vandeveld said, so "Come and check out Drona," and I was like, well, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really even know where Drona was. So I looked it up and and came here with my wife and immediately we were like, well, this is it. This is, this is perfect, ticks all the boxes. In what way? Uh, well, the training starters, the climate, airports nearby, going left here. Yeah, no, this, this has got all of that. And we're on one of those main things now, which is the climbing. And this is El as has it started? Yes, this is it. It's a nice riding climb. It's not a very good training climb because the gradient changes too much. It's very hard to stay consistent, and it's not really hard enough. There are plenty of other climbs where you can do that around here.
1: Already, we've been riding for what? 3 k something like that, and we are on a quiet road. You can hear the traffic noise has gone, and a 10 k climb ahead of us. You can totally see why people live here and have these as their home roads. I mean, do you just ride around here now, without even thinking about it. You just know where you're going. You don't have to worry about anything.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, I've done I tens of thousands of kilometers here, so it's, uh, but I don't actually ride that much anymore, simply because of time and three little children and traveling so much. Cycling for me is very different than, than for other people. It doesn't, doesn't empty my head. It doesn't... No, not the slightest. Running does. Going to the gym does. But cycling... No, that's like two decades of banging my head against a wall. And I like cycling for social now. If I do go, I like to go out with a group and... It's just chatting and zero effort. No data collection. When
1: you reflect back on it when you were racing and the... Well, the ups and the downs, and you've written extensively about it in both your books. When you think about the best times, what
2: were they? It's it's very much mood-dependent, state of mind. And I think now I can just kind of look at it in a more macro way, where I'm very lucky to have such a a long career, and in many ways such a a colourful career, because... It means I'm now 40, and I've had, for better or worse, most incredible life experiences. I feel a lot older than 40. (laughs) You crammed a lot in. Yeah, a huge amount, and and that's due to cycling. That allowed me, gave me a vehicle to to push myself in many different directions, and also be pushed in the wrong directions.
1: Well, I was going to say, because it seems a strange question to ask you, but do you have any regrets? Or do you feel that you learn from every experience, good and bad?
2: Well, I think everybody must have regrets. If you don't have regrets, then you're not learning. Because a regret is recognising an error in your ways, a mistake, something that you could have done better or shouldn't have done. So if you don't recognise regrets, I mean, sure, if you've never done anything wrong... Then you can say I've got no regrets. But I don't think there are many people in this world that can say that. So yeah, I have plenty of regrets. But I hope that it makes me a better person now.
1: Because you started, you know, 19, wasn't it, when you got your first contract? Yeah. And then you were racing the big races really quite soon after that. So it seemed like you were sort of totally in at the deep end, more than Neo
2: Pros are these days. Yeah, math, sport was different. I was a world tour when I was 19, and, you know, it's completely a kind of self-made. So being self-made meant, meant that I didn't have an entourage or people around me to look after me. So I relied completely on my pro team and trusted them implicitly. And that was my... That was a big mistake, in a pro cycling team to have your best interests in mind yeah but I didn't know that at the time
1: um, I don't mean naivety in the pro peloton it's just not just confined to the, the youngest members is it? we've seen it you know in every generation the, the people making mistakes whether they're new to the racing or you know they're a bit more seasoned apparently so we talked about documenting in the books coming up next is you documenting in a film tell me about the film you've made Time Trial and how it came about
2: Uh, it came about because my sister just over ten years ago Fran Fran Miller Team Sky Senior Management now she sent me this DVD of this a short film called Standing Start by Craig McLean, the track sprinter it was only like 15 minutes long I think it was made by a Scottish director called Finley Pretzel and, I watched, and she just sent it through the post to me she said you've got to watch this I think you'll love it and I watched it and I was like holy shit this is amazing I've never seen anything nobody's ever captured cycling like that before in film And she was right. I kept watching over and over again. And then uh, that year I was at the Braveheart dinner in Scotland, which is a charity. And uh, Finley was there. and I introduced myself to him and uh, told him how much I admired standing start. And he said, do you want to make one on road racing? I was like, I'd love to make one on road racing. He's like, okay. And that's where it started. 10 years ago. So that's, that's been a long time of the making. 10 years ago, oh Jesus Christ. There's been. I mean, I've written two books. I joke with him. I've written two books. I've rebooted my racing career. I've had three children, we've got married. I've retired, moved here, moved to Spain. <laughs> learned a different language. <laughs> Still, still the film wasn't fucking finished. Did you have any
1: idea when you embarked on it? I mean, did you know anything about the process of making a no, long-form film?
2: But in the meantime, in a way, the fact it took so long was good, because getting the funding, for starters, rallying all the different groups to be on the side, which was, we learned, nigh impossible, hence why it took so long, even my own team. Um... But, I mean, all that kind of helped. So, and I did write two books. And I learned all about storytelling doing that. I worked on Stephen Freer's film, The Programme. The Programme, about Lance Armstrong. Yeah, I was Stephen Freer's right-hand man for a year, which was the most amazing experience. And so all those things helped my point of view and understand what Finley had to do. Because it's not your normal documentary. It's not just going to fly on the wall and interviews with people who are going to blow wind up your ass. we wanted to make a film that was you were inside my head and it took so much shooting and reshooting and and it was a it was a kind of a, I had complete and utter faith in He wanted to maybe do stupid things and you know and it's kind of paid off what is it
1: in you It wants to sort of lay yourself bare, whether it's on the written page or now in a film like Time Trial.
2: Uh, It's just art, isn't it? Is it catharsis? No, not in the slightest. No, God, no. It's 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 creating something. It's a wonderful thing to write a book, to make a film and to have a subject that facilitates it. It's true with the books that you found your voice really quickly. You obviously read a lot to yeah. do that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's... Thank God I was part of a, a pre-smartphone generation where I did read so much. I mean, I barely read anymore because I'm stuck on my bloody phone. Yeah. And it's horrible. I'm not learning
1: anything. I was hoping you'd be one of those people similar age to me who managed to eschew social media and...
2: Yeah. The rest of it, I can I'm welded to it and can't put it down. Yeah, it's a horrible thing, and yeah, it's an addiction. I feel for the younger generation now because into their thirties and forties, they won't have read many books, so I doubt it. So we've just missed it all. The climb's flattened out a bit now,
1: hasn't it? So it feels like we're at the uh, towards the top of it. It's quite, it's really pleasant up here. Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, sun's high. It's not too hot, not too it reminds cold. Reminds me of Australia, for some reason. It's amazing, really, isn't it? You know, Catalonia, one of the richest parts of Spain, so therefore among the richest parts of Europe, and so quiet here.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a very sparse country, really. I live 15 kilometres out, and we live down a dirt road. Our kids go to the local village school and... But that's only a 20-minute drive from the centre of Girona. And then you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And if I, go, I can go for a bike ride from my house, my favourite loop, it's only like an hour and a half, two hours. It's like 500 metres climbing without any real climb, just always up and down. But not one traffic light for 50 kilometres. You can see, like, sometimes three or four cars.
1: Oh, so we're coming to the top now?
2: I'm not quite, Okay. afraid,
1: Matt. Oh. Well, I was enjoying the talking when it flattened out, but it's now five per cent again. Yeah, easy for you. It's a hidden summit.
2: And what's at the top? It's a monastery. We can go there. Okay, have a drink. Oh, perfect. Yeah, chill out.
1: We can if I can get my chain back on.
2: Campag.
1: Yeah, Campag is. uh, I haven't ridden Campag since it's got character. 2000 and. Oh. Well, once this car goes past, let's talk about what you're riding and
2: yeah.
1: what you've enjoyed riding in the past as well. So, yeah. David, tell me about the bike you're on at the moment uh, and also what you're wearing
2: too. My whole career, I had to ride what the team was sponsored by, the clothes they were sponsored by, the design they chose. And so I kind of made a real decision that when I stopped being a professional bike racer, I was going to d- dictate kind of everything I used. And and this is it. I mean, i got my, my Chapter 3 brand that we created, which is called Chapter 3 because, well, number one, didn't want to call it and didn't want to use my name anywhere. because It's just a bit cliche. And also, my name is a bit like Marmite. <laughs> so Chapter 3, we thought was quite cool because my final year bike racing all the interviews was what's the next chapter what's the next chapter and it wasn't chapter 2 because my career had all been split in two where I'd had very much a a career of two halves and so it really was chapter 3 and so chapter 3 wanted to be able to use that as a brand where we could make all these beautiful things and and work with a lot of the partners I'd Made during my cycling career, my racing career, and take it into my non racing career life. And so the Castelli collaboration was a first, which is what all these clothes are. Their Hang premium on. line. That was someone on a Brompton. I know, going that was awesome. I've never seen a Brompton in Angeles. Angels. Someone's descending a 10k
1: climb on a brightly colored
2: Brompton. Then the Bikers Factor, which is a new brand, it's owned by a guy called Rob Jotillis, an American. Who's based in Taiwan? They bought Factor, it's a British brand. And Baden, well, Baden Cook's a, sm- a small partner in it as well, ex bike racer. And that's how I got involved. There are only four bike brands in the world that own their factory Giant, Trek, Shrek, Merida, Factor. Okay,
1: yeah. Chapter three. And Factor as well being a reaction to how life was before. Which kits in particular did you hate, and which bikes didn't
2: you enjoy riding? I didn't, I never got on with the Cervelo. Why? Just was too, the geometry was all wrong for me. At the time, they've changed it now, I'm sure. It had a very much uh, end consumer geometry, rather than a racer geometry. I like twitchy, stiff, proper race bikes, which are a handful. I really had everything else I kind of liked. Felt I really loved. thought the felt was cool. And what about the kit? Which team kit did you detest Ooh. wearing? I have to say. First gen. Slipstream. Was an eyesore. And a <laughs> remind me of it. It was the blue and orange Argyle. Mm-hmm. Four child national champion. So I didn't have to wear it. But even then, they made me wear white shorts which I didn't want. So, that wasn't the finest hour.
1: <laughs> I think we're getting to the top of the climb, aren't we? There's a few school kids playing, school trip out here. To the, so, this is the monastery at the top this of El yeah. Oh, wow, that's a great view.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it?
1: Is that the Pyrenees in the
2: distance? Over there, yeah, that's the foothill, is that? Yeah, uh, Mediterranean, you can see there.
1: Yeah.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: This is right.
1: That's interesting. A table full of old men singing songs at, brilliant, in isn't the it? cafe up here at the monastery. You don't get this kind of atmospheric cafe stop in southeast south of England, that's for sure. <laughs> uh,
2: I'll
1: get these. Sure, thank you. Yeah. That's the difference there between a working presenter and a retired
2: pro cyclist. You have a yeah, beer. No, yeah, I can't beer. That's, that's my, my usual stop. A lot of these mountains around here have these sanctuaries at the top, old well, monasteries, and this is the nearest one to Girona, El's Angels. Over there, Roca Corba, which is the kind of the famous near-mountain, the pros testing ground, and in the distances are Mare del Deu, which is another sanctuary. You mentioned Roca Corba,
1: it's a climb you love, it's a name you've used. What is it about it? Because I've ridden Roca Corba a couple of times, and it is horrible.
2: It is horrible, actually. I mean, even when you're at your best, it's horrible. It's one of those climbs that you never really have a floater on, because it's just so steep towards the end. But it's, um, it's iconic, And so the great thing about it is it's a dead end. And it's, once you get to the top, it's just it's such a stunning view. And there's something quite romantic about that. The only reason you go up it is to come back down it. We have our private cycling club called Fellow Club and Corba, which is a bit of an institution now, an eccentric institution. Once a year, the club rides up to the top and drinks cava and eats jamon atop it. So that's the nicest way to do it. What's it
1: like riding down after the ham and
2: the cava? Good fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> reckless. Now, actually, to be honest with you, everyone's pretty... No-one goes reckless, because it's it's, it'll ruin everybody's day if somebody goes down. So Although there is a mild bit of inebriation, there's no, there's no stupidity, thankfully. I think the only rider to ever crash going down, there's two... Crispin Latimer, who is now the, the, the president of Velo Club of Corba, and Mark Cavendish. Yeah. Mark
1: Cavendish crashed Mark Cavendish descending crash. Rock of Corba.
2: Yeah, and that was just a total anomalous accident. And he was fine, but it was just like, seriously, you're one of the best bike handlers in the world and all these muppets around you. And, and so that was, that's kind of well, classic Velo Club Roca Corba behaviour. <laughs> just, yeah, stupid.
1: I'm impressed that we've stopped for a, a coffee, and I'm having a coffee. I've had a Cortado and you're having a beer. Not bad.
2: Yeah, yeah, me and my friends, whenever we go for a bike rides around here, we just stop and have a beer. As rider stores do it as well.
1: Rider Heisdahl? Yeah. When you were both racing? Towards the
2: end, yeah. On long rides, stop and have a beer. Not coffee and cake? Nah, beer and crisps. That's how the Spanish do it. Do you think that there is
1: something in cycling and something in cycling fans that likes that there is an element of doping? They like that the danger and the mystique and, and that sort of side
2: of it. Likes to think of a strong word, I think they're just familiar with it. Uh, you have to remember the global audience or the Anglo Saxon audience in prof- professional cycling now has grown up. Uh, when I turned pro in 97, nobody knew what professional cycling was in the UK and nobody cared, frankly. And now it's one of the the biggest and Highest participation sports and kind of the the huge, very educated fan base, and that educated fan base has known nothing but scandal after scandal until recently, where it's calmed down. So yeah, it is an inherent part of sport. And often we don't watch sport just for the performances; it's for all the drama around it. It's for the, the the kind of the sideline stories, the the kind of the background, the soap opera sort of nature of it, or the the characters that are involved, the the characters on the fringe, the kind of the. The, the, the rise and falls, the, the kind of the the declines, the ascending spirals, the descending spirals, it's, it's not just the start line and finish line. And I think that the doping scandals gave cycling that really sort of Wild West kind of proper big story sport. You know, it wasn't dull, it was really interesting, there was a real dark side to it and it was good versus evil and it was, you know, and you had kind of, it was a Lance Armstrong generation, so you had this kind of global sports star caught up in all this did he didn't he had kind of everyone wearing yellow bands i mean so the the sport inherently is is it's part of its dna for better or worse and you know obviously sports i think cleaner it's ever been in one of the cleanest sports in the world now do you think the sport is as interesting
1: as it's ever been and i'm not talking specifically about being cleaner because of you know better anti-doping strategies but also the obsession with numbers and power output and radios and bigger teams, suffocating races and all of that kind of stuff.
2: I think it's not as interesting at the moment, but I mean inherently the sport is as interesting. I think unfortunately the the, the way it's managed uh, internally with teams and and by uh, the kind of every team has their their press officer etc. and I think they do stifle the athletes and I think the the, the, the bike riders do find. Uh, Find themselves being almost gagged to so you can't be a personality anymore. You can't be yourself because often being yourself breaks the kind of the brand guidelines. Um, So I think it's a shame. I think we're missing a trick there. I think we allow you you see the only riders that are a bit sort of quirky and off centre, they're not winning bike races. You know, except for the greatest in Sagan who is totally. The total outlier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Peter Sagan, he, he does buck the whole trend. I love that about Peter Sagan. He's the kind of saviour of our sports because he's in this modern generation of everyone's like, it's robotic, it's this, it's that. And yeah, he's in it and he's beaten all of them and he's a total character. So why can't you be? It's like, why can't you be yourself? And so although I, I do empathise with the bike racers and the fact that I do, I can understand what it's like to be scared and want to keep your job and, and sort, of, sort of put a firewall around yourself, but at the same time, look at Peter Sagan. He just kind of, he's a total, he's himself. I mean, and it's fun to watch. Everybody loves him. He wins bike races. Granted, he's just a complete phenom and was born different. And, but at the same time, I think he's, he's a role model. I think that goes to show that the two can exist in the same world. And it's not the sport that that's, has a problem. I think it's the... The kind of It's the people, it's the riders within it and the, the staff around them, and it's, there's so much potential. I mean
1: you grew up here, a lot in Hong Kong and travelled the world racing and now we're talking, you know, up a mountain outside Girona in Catalonia, but you're a very proud Scotsman.
2: Have you have you actually spent much time in Scotland and would you wish you'd lived there more? I lived there until I was five or six and I went back there quite a bit during my ban and a couple of times a year I go there, not for family but normally it's, it's work but the, the greatest thing for me is whenever I meet Scots, wherever I am in the world, I just get on with them immediately, it's kind of just, a, just the same people, it makes me weird, that's, that's what 's always reminded me that I am Scottish because whenever I meet Scots I'm like, alright oh, okay, that's, I'm, yeah we're the same, so I'm not kind of the weird sort of we're a guy who's lived across all over the place it's just no i'm scottish and we're just like this does the accent get stronger it does get a little bit there's a little kind of but my accent does that anyway because i've got all these sad expat accents that are searching for identity so morphs <laughs> but yeah i mean i'm scottish and i think the closest to uh, i come to is hong kong my kind of my hong kong friends and just out there recently and again it's like oh i'm here and it's like yeah this is where i'm from can so you speak I the language no we've never learned it in a classic british way yeah, I went to British, the oldest British school there and we didn't learn Chinese standard policy. But yeah, so I mean, it's, it's an interesting one for me since so I live here, but the, the older I get, the more secure I am in, in where I'm from And it is Scotland and Hong Kong.
1: It's interesting that we're sitting in Catalonia and Catalonia has been going through huge change recently as well. How, how does that make you feel about, about the place we're sitting in, the place that you call home?
2: I mean, some, it makes me a little bit... Uh, worried uh, because it's history repeating. It's, uh, the Spanish are not handling it very well in the slightest. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't believe in separatism. I don't believe in nationalistic ideas. I think we're better being connected and together. Um, but at the same time, I can I can, can empathise with the, what the Catalans are going through. I mean, if you look just recently back into the history, into the, the mid 1970s. So when I was the year I was born, they were just bringing Catalan back in to schools. But Franco had banned Catalan. So your home language had been banned. So a lot of the old people you see here can speak Catalan, can't write or read it because they weren't allowed to and they were never taught because the penalties were going to be massive. And that's that's very recent history. That's all the people around where we live. We live in the country. They, they were genuinely affected by Franco's era and the nas- Spanish nationalism. And unfortunately, in Madrid, the Spanish nationalism lives strong. They, they do spit on Catalonia. They think it's a peasant community. But it's wealthy. It generates it's a huge a proportion of wonderful GDP. wonderful culture and the oldest democratic parliament in the world.
1: Do you think um, the Catalan situation and the, and the friction with <clears throat> Madrid could stop this being somewhere you'd want to live, Something somewhere you'd want to ride your bike i
2: never know the catalans are fundamentally peaceful people massively so and they're wonderful people and i I'm, my my two boys they have catalan middle names and they speak catalan and they'll, they'll be scottish catalan dutch south african because their mother's got a complicated background as well but i think for them always they're, they're going to be catalan and i'm very proud of that and you know, they will remain so
1: I'm acutely aware on this Friday afternoon that at some point you have to get back to pick your boys up from school. Yeah. I want to finish off by asking, what is chapter four
2: going to be? But it's more like a... There you go. Bells are torn. It's more like a third act. And a third act, it's the end. You know. There isn't a fourth act. So. That's four. Three o'clock. OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Good on that, timing. Yeah. No, so I mean that's the point. I mean chapter three it was always it's the third act and you're too young
1: for a third act. You're in the Uh, middle, you're not in the last third.
2: I'm gonna make this a long last third. Yeah. The first first two acts were pretty intense. I'm gonna enjoy this one. David, thanks a lot. Thank you, Matt.